Hello, and welcome back to week 13 of College Students and Their Cultures. This week, we're engaging in a conversation on college and discourses of gender, uh, reading a piece by Finn Enke from 2012 about uh, terms and concepts related to gender, uh, a piece by Chase Catalano from 2015, Trans Enough, The Pressures Trans Men Negotiate in Higher Education. I was fortunate enough to interview Dr. Catalano um, and he was so kind to uh, be present for this, and so you'll hear a conversation between the two of us. Uh, we'll follow that up by a piece uh, by Finn Enke again called The Education of Little Sis, about the idea of cisgender. Um, then we'll move into a photo voice piece uh, by Dr. Pyle Shaw called Spaces to Speak, Photo Voice and the Reimagination of Girls' Education in India. Um, and then we'll uh, close it out with another photo voice piece, uh, to be seen or not to be seen. Photo voice, queer and trans youth and the dilemma of representation, uh, problematizing and troubling some more uh, the liberatory potentiality of photo voice as a research methodology. I'm excited to, as always, to be here with you all for this conversation. Let's get started. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, thanks. Uh, today uh, we have Dr. Chase Catalano uh, from Virginia Tech. Uh, um, I can be fancy. I meant to look it up beforehand. I think it's Virginia Polytechnic Institute, if that's correct. Is right, Chase? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and State University. Oh, and State University. I, I know it's a very long title, and I, I did look it up beforehand. Um, Me too. Make, makes for cover letter writing a little bit long when one's applied with Virginia Tech. Yeah. Um, so um, I would love if you would just uh, introduce yourself first, Chase, and uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, who you are and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So hi, um, I'm Chase, and I'm in my first year here at Virginia Tech. Uh, previously, I'll give my how I got here in reverse order. Previously, I was an assistant professor for four years at Western Illinois University in the College Student Personnel Program. Prior to that, I was uh, the director for five years of the LGBT Resource Center at Syracuse University. Um, and before that, I was working in residence life uh, at UMass Amherst. And before that, I don't know, I think I was at the University of Vermont um, as in residence life. And before that, I was a master's student. Um, again at UMass working in fraternity and sorority life, so a wide variety of uh, paths to get to this faculty position. Um, and so far being in Southwest Virginia has been pretty great, global pandemic aside. Sure, yeah, absolutely. That I think um, uh, goes without saying for most of us at this point. Yes. Um, and so this week in class, uh, we read your article, Trans Enough, the pressures trans men negotiate higher education. Mm -hmm. um, and so can you talk to me about that term trans enough? Sure, I mean, I think <clears throat> when I think about the research that I did on um, trans men in college, um, that was probably the biggest finding that I had from my research. Um, and it came through in a variety of ways um, and not always the same way, which is why I think it's so persistent, right? So um, there's the trans enough for trans men that was, they were not normatively masculine enough. They actually felt external pressures from trans students in on their campus. And I would argue also cis folks on their campus that they didn't uh, subscribe enough or express enough normative masculinity. So if they didn't do that, they didn't feel trans enough. Um, coupled with that was the idea that the expectation that trans enough meant you were going to follow through on biomedical transition related interventions, whether or not they ever really wanted to. And most specifically, the ways I heard it come through in a lot of the participants was to eventually have genital surgery, right? Even though most of them said that they didn't want that in their future. 
but that was like, if I don't, then I'm not trans enough. Um, kind of in uh, contradiction to that, there were trans men who were talking about how because they felt like they looked um, or expressed or were perceived as so gender normative, um, they were not trans enough because they were subscribing to the gender binary, right? And so being trans enough meant that you were incoherently gender. Um, and that was a priority. Um, and so those were like the key things that came through that it was this intra um, struggle within trans communities that said um, that you are not trans enough. Um, and the way I would frame it now is added to cis normativity that, that tells um, all trans people that they are not trans enough um, because that there's no way to be um, aligned with gender norms because you are trans in some way, right? And so um, it's kind of this persistent, never enough narrative that comes through. So would, as, as I uh, think back to reading your piece, uh, which mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed, and this conversation here, is there anyone that like talked about feeling that they were trans enough? No. So it's this, no. this like and, pressure that everyone feels and everyone is not yeah. everyone is a big word and, and I use it right. but that seems like a lot of folks feel that. Yes and I think it and, and it continues today I mean that that piece came out in 2015 and here we are in 2020 and um, conversations that I have with trans kin and other trans scholars and faculty right um it's still persistent, right? Like, and it goes, I mean, maybe the best example is we go round and round in this about like the pronoun question, right? And so one of the conversations that I've had with other trans folks has been, you know, because I use he, him, his as my pronouns, does that make me not trans enough? Because as I walk through the world, for most people, there is nothing gender transgressive about me, right? Like I'm like, middle-aged white dude who has a pretty boring, like rather normative gender aesthetic, um, pretty bland. Um, and that like the using he, him, his, is that a way of, you know, hiding it and hiding my transness. And yet um, I spent a lot of money and put a lot of time into being able to achieve um, rather seamlessly he, him, his pronouns. Right. Um, and so I think that, that that tension still exists. And I think it exists with gender nonconforming and uh, agender folks who want to be seen and understood as they, them, there. Um, and I think part of maybe the biggest problem that really just continues to amplify the trans enough and not being trans enough is that we've somehow distilled the conversation about transness to a conversation about pronouns. Right. right, as the final arbiter of anything or a marker of trans inclusive practices. Yeah, well, I think um, that goes back um, to a conversation you and I were having earlier about um, your, your upcoming study on the experiences of uh, safe zone facilitators um, mm -hmm. and how this whole, well, and that also about the conflation between the LGB and the T and uh, everything about the pronouns and, and one of the, the supplementary articles uh, for this uh, class session is, um, is it the education of little cis. Oh yeah, cisgender in the discipline of opposing bodies, um, mm -hmm. and so you know it, it, it all gets distilled and often framed by non-trans folks, uh, yep. as opposed to coming from the community uh, mm -hmm. that is most um, important to center. Yeah, yeah. I mean the those ed like so the safe zone trainings, educational interventions, like most designs are still assuming that trans and queer people are not in the room, mm -hmm. right? It's still about the education of the dominant culture. And, you know, for Anki's piece, it's really, you know, it's about we're still, we're still centering cisness, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think as we continue to do that, that's one of the barriers to getting past this rhetoric of trans enough, right? Because that's the internalization 
of the external oppression, right? You've internalized the oppression to say, well, I will never, never be enough, right? Um, and unfortunately that happened. Um, yeah, absolutely. And also the, the thought process behind like, I think the internal idea of, and the external pressure of thinking that uh, trans folks, the moment that they come out, they, they know everything that means to be trans. Yep. Um, and you talk a little bit about in your piece about like the personal history informing the present, right? And so the personal right. history of someone whose gender identity may have been um, uh, publicly different than how they are currently and how that uh, impacts their, their lives because we are socialized in a way that may not be the way that we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's not really a question. Well, no, I, I think, I mean, yeah, I think it's a great point, right? Like that, um, and, you know, Green, uh, Jameson Green in the 90s wrote about this, right? It's the expectation that, um, how did I frame it the other day? That trans people not only did their gender homework, but they did extra credit and maybe got a minor in it too, is um, such um such a like a manifestation of that too, because it one expects that trans people do all the work and all the unpacking because they have a marginalized identity. Right. And it relieves cis people of histories, contexts, and experiences of like almost as if they don't need to know any of that, including their own gendered pasts, right? Um, and so I think there's like the, this very um weird dynamic, right? And so we have these trans students in college who um, are figuring out their gender and we give lip service to it being fluid and uh, that it's a, it's a process, not a product, right? And yet we wanna pin them down to labels, experiences, ways to codify them in the, what Spade calls like the administrative violence of the documentation systems that we have in higher education specifically, right? And so that is, that's like a, a force we don't put on other people. We just take them at face value that when they say their gender is a woman or a man, that that is, of course, the way it, that makes sense, right, somehow. So you, you, you alluded a little bit to Dean Spade administrative violence there. Um, and, and I don't have that assigned. And so would you mind just kind of like uh, giving briefly uh, what you meant by that? Sure. Um, so in Spade's book, Normal Life, um, he talks about, um, and so he's a trans uh, legal scholar and lawyer, um, and he founded the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. Um, and so his work focuses on in, in normative, normative life is the way that the systems themselves are set up to enact violence against trans people um, because of the ways that we are required to kind of be easily cross-referenced and filed through the various systems that operate. So whether government, government systems, identification systems, prison systems, all of those act as different forms of violence on trans bodies and lives as a way to force us to try and comport ourselves into the categories that exist for which we are trying to say we do not exist. Um, and that those who are the most vulnerable through forms of multiple forms of marginalization get pushed out even farther from being able to access resources because they can't access homeless shelters or survivor centers or uh, food stamps or um, general healthcare because the systems themselves shut them out through what he calls administrative violence. And I think um, for the students um, watching, uh, we read a piece, um, uh, never mind, it was last semester. Scratch that, I'll edit that out. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have a colleague of mine who does research about um, uh, gender um, and talked about in a piece we wrote together about uh, libraries. Um, and their NLIS person and talk about like where trans uh, literature is shelved and how that enacts violence. And so we read a piece that yeah. talked about that, but it was last semester, not this semester. So I'll come. No, that sounds really cool. It was, yeah, it was, it was a piece that I, we actually wrote with Miles. Oh, okay. So uh, it was uh, a 
autoethnographic piece with me, Miles, and Travis. Um, it was it was a it was a cool piece. I really it was it was cool. Um, and so um, moving through, uh, one of the things you talk about early on in your piece is about uh, the conflation between the LGBT and T in higher ed literature. Um, yeah. You also talked about how this piece came out in 2015, which meant you wrote it in 2006. Uh, with no, I actually content. wrote it. I actually wrote that piece in 2015. Oh, that's fantastic. Cool. I, yeah. was, I was just being snarky, uh, not yeah. to you, but about timelines. No, usually that's true, but the call came out and then it was that summer of 2014. Mm -hmm. I oddly, just so you know, I wrote like oddly, I wrote it that summer and then I had like major revisions I had to do. And I wrote, I rewrote the entire piece in January of 2015. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so, you know. Sure. Um, so do you think that conflation still exists? Oh. Um, and do you think that is relegated to only to the higher education literature or kind of across the board? Well, I definitely think it still exists. Um, in fact, I was, I was starting to work on a piece called um, The Troublesome Tea um, in LGBT because I think it continues to be um, a problem. Um, or really, I guess I would say troublesome. It, I don't think that the tea is a problem, but I think the way that we handle um, transness within queer communities is um, a problem oh. in that um, you know the moniker itself people one we assume people have more knowledge than they do and that they can discern that trans is a gender and LGB are sexualities um, and I think that gives people more uh, I think I think that's more generous than maybe uh, a lot of people really take the time to learn. Uh, they may have heard of the moniker, they may have heard of LGBT, but I don't know that everyone who comes into higher education really understands the difference between the identities, the experiences, and the terms. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that persists. I think that um, it continues to get complicated and conflated uh, in ways that, you know, we could see in the literature, like pieces are still published that talk about LGBT students and, um, use um, heterosexism and homophobia as the only language they use, not at all attending to dynamics of genderism or trans oppression or cis normativity. Um, so I think that that will continue to be um, an issue until we actually take up the question of the troublesome tea. Um, and I would expect that it's an issue in other, other fields as well. Um, I'm not as well versed in uh, in other fields that, you know, I like borrow a little from social work and psychology and um, community organizing. And so I've seen definitely issues there. It definitely shows up in P through 12 issues in education as well. Um, and the T is super scary to people in P through 12 settings um, in the way that I think the LGV used to be um, in that it seems dangerous or contagious or I don't know if we give students this idea when they're young people that they could have agency over their own gender, what will they do, right? Um, and, and that shows up in higher ed too. Like if we let students change their name in the administrative system, what if they put, I had someone post this question the other day, what if they put something like, you know, helicopter or whatever, right? Like I think that's the new meme that's out there about a sexuality, right? But I, I mean, I've heard similar things about transness, like what if they say that's their gender or that's the name they want to go by? And I have the same response now that I did, you know, when I was an LGBT center director back to when I was doing this research, which is, okay. Yeah. Like is, is the world gonna end because someone decided to have a funny about their, how they want to be listed in the system? Like within 24 to 48 hours, they'll probably change it. Like I'm not feeling like, we need to like surveil all of this all the time. I think that's a dominance issue that I'm kind of uninterested in yeah. giving attention to. Yeah, um, my partner had a student one time put in a form that their name was Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> um, apparently the kid ended up being just a joke. He was an incoming first year student and thought it'd be mm -hmm. funny and you know, like, yeah, like sometimes shit like that happens. Yeah. But it's not, the world's not, coming down because of that right 
Well, and the, I think it's um, an educational moment, right? It's an opportunity because if a student put down Teddy Roosevelt as their name, right? Like my first day of class, I have students fill out, you know, what's the name on the roster and what is the name that you wish that I and others call you? Yeah. Um, and if they put down Teddy Roosevelt, literally the next class, I would be like, okay, Teddy, what do you think? Right? And I think for that student who thought they were being funny and it didn't have consequences, it would be a moment for them to realize like, oh, you, you take this seriously. And yeah, yeah I take this seriously. I want to respect your agency to self-define yourself. Well, I think you also misheard me. It was Teddy Roosevelt, um, not Roosevelt. Um, but you know, the point, the point remains. I think, yeah, that's, you know, I had a student when I taught yeah. a first year experience class, um, whose name was Alex and was like, yeah, actually I go by swag. And everyone was like, what? I was like, all right, cool. And I called him swag the entire rest of the semester. Um, he wanted to go by swag nasty. I cut it short. Um, but you know, like he was an interesting student that I worked with. Right. And you know, if that's what he wanted to go by, I think it, it's a simple, I think it's a simple response. It's elegance in its simplicity, I think. Yeah, I think when we make it into a fire, right, instead of um, just a, a, a noticing moment, that is, that is our reaction to what's happening. And, you know, as we know about feedback, like, or dynamics, I can't control anybody else's reaction to anything. I can only control my own. And so if their reaction is to make fun of it, and I take it seriously, that's the only power that I have in that situation. Um, and I've had students who go by names similar to your student swag, um, who like, that's really the name they wanted people to call them. And we had a lot of conversations about, um, as this person developed and got ready to graduate, like, if this is the name you want people to call you, let's talk about what that looks like on your resume, right? right? Let's talk about what that looks like on your cover letter, because I don't want you to work in an environment where people can't respect right. what you actually answer to, right? I get that you also answer to this other name and I want you to believe that you don't have to. Right. Right. Um, and that there's power in you claiming the name that's important. Yeah. Well, that's like undoing the administrative violence, right? Mm -hmm. Because also the, the thing that I always heard when I worked in our, uh, uh, with, in student affairs is that you, you couldn't have folks with their uh, chosen name on their ID because it's a state ID, right? And it'll it'll lead to rampant ID theft. And it's like, really? Like who takes like an ISU Redbird card as ID, right? Or who takes a, a Virginia Tech Hokey card or whatever you all call it over there um, as like formal ID? Like no one's traveled. Like, so like, yes, there's the very real problem, right? That like, it, there's a barrier to getting your name on a, a real ID. Right. But like, right. I think sometimes administrators and institutions take ourselves too seriously to the detriment of the same yeah. experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about centering our authority to be able to tell someone no, instead of um, inviting people in to say, tell me how this would be helpful for you, right? right? Because we, we get so used to the status quo that we've decided, well, that's going to, Really, because what we're saying is your name is too complicated for me. Your identity and your experience is too complicated for me. Um, yeah. And, you know, to circle it back around to your question about the LGBT, right, and the, the problem, you know, the troublesome T, it's that um, in order for us to really understand the complexity and capaciousness of queer and trans communities, we have to be willing to address what it means to create acronyms. Um, that attend to our communities. I mean, I think in the same way that the shorthand people of color is problematic because it obfuscates like the identities of lots of different racial communities and ethnic communities, right? In the same way that students with disabilities in no way does justice to the variety of disabilities that students experience in, in their everyday lives, right? Like, so maybe um, shorthand isn't always the best way to move forward, right? It's it's for a soundbite then instead of um, lived experiences. Yeah, I have a, a friend of mine who um, her her name can be shortened very easily, but that's not what she goes by, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she knows like if someone and her full name is more difficult to pronounce. 
and she knows if someone can't pronounce my name right, like that's not someone to trust. And it kind of goes off of, I think it's the, the Shire um, um, poem about give your daughters difficult names, right? I, I see a lot of resonance there that when you don't choose to know someone's name, when you don't choose to use someone's correct pronouns or address them correctly, like that's a signal uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm not someone to be trusted. Um, right. I'm not willing to invest in you. Right. Right. In, in understanding you and seeing you as a whole person. I'm only willing to give you the amount of attention that my brain is willing to compute in a short interaction opposed to, yes, like, tell me your name and I'm going to ask you to repeat it so that I can make sure my pronunciation is accurate. Right. Right. Um, and, I, and I think that goes back, you know, like we can talk about that on the Those aren't small level. things. Those are what students look for. Right, but there's the individual level that you and the faculty, we as faculty members do with our students, but then there's the institutional level, right? Why should we trust Illinois State or Virginia Tech or Western right. Illinois or University of South Carolina or wherever we're at mm-hmm. if the institution is getting it right? Right. So, well, and what, what reason do we have to believe that institutions want to get it right other than to meet some, I mean, quite honestly, some neoliberal um, notion of efficiency? Right. Right. If, if, if it's just we're just doing it because it's easier and we think we'll get results faster. Uh, that's not what I think about when I think of efficiency. Efficiency to me, right, to use um, Deborah Stone, who wrote The Policy Paradox, which is one of the books I'm teaching this semester. Um, right. Talks about efficiency is actually being about the ways to get the most goods to the most people. Right. That is what efficiency looks like. It's not about how do I do this the fastest with the least amount of effort to get the maximum output. That's actually like a capitalist notion of what it means to do efficiency. Right. And I think we need to kind of push against that. Just like pedagogy wasn't meant to be simple and easy. It's supposed to take a semester long of relationship building in order for it to be uh, effective for students. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think this conversation has been uh, really wonderful, and, and um, one of the quotes uh, from the end of your piece, um, I think, is really resonant to this conversation about the kind of the, the, the actual nuts and bolts of doing the work to support trans students, and, and you, you write, as much as we need to theorize the possibilities of trans identities beyond the medical model, Colleges and universities must also attend to the limitations of the lived day-to-day experience of trans students struggling to survive their college or university administrative processes and resources. And that comes from page 426. And I think, yes, um, very really, sometimes we spend too much time over theorizing without really thinking through what is the lived experience. And I, I really appreciate you both for your, your work here, uh, centering the experiences of uh, trans men um, and your work as an educator centering uh, the voices of students and, and people. Um, and I, I just wanted to acknowledge and appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. That's very generous of you. Thank you. Oh, wow. um, you, you talk about uh, two suggestions um, mm-hmm. in your piece, adopt known best practices and put resources towards research and assessment. Would you mind kind of, or if you are changing those in the past five years, as well. Oh, yeah, like, I mean, I think that, you know, I will be honest, my biggest struggle always in uh, finishing a piece is the conclusion and giving sure. people action steps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because they feel, I don't know, they feel hollow, right? Um, I also feel like <laughs> I've written the whole thing, go ahead and make the conclusion you want to make. Like at this point, now it's on you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. So, I mean, like anyone who's co-authored with me knows I like always stall out at the conclusion. Um, and so I guess what I would say is, you know, I think, you know, Z Nicolazzo has some really, um, she has some amazing points about this limitation we have with best practices um, because people use them as plug and play, right? What's a best practice at um, Illinois State is not going to be the best practice at Virginia Tech or at any other institution. And so I guess what I would say is folks can look at best practices, but I need them to distill down what it is that best practice is encouraging and figure out how to make that relevant for the institutional context they're at, right? So a regional state university, um, a large land grant university, a small private liberal arts colleges, a community college, best practices don't translate to different institutional types. 
they even don't even translate within a state, right? So what works at Illinois State is not going to work at Western, right. um, is, is not going to work at Southern or even the, or the University of Chicago or University of Illinois, right? So I think that best practices, that's a place to start to know what are the best practices that are out there. And then I need you to like trouble them. Like I actually, what I would tell people now is like trouble, trouble the shit out of them. Because I, and ask who are they serving? Are they serving institutional um, like boundaries or are they pushing institutional boundaries to finally say, not only do we expect you to come, we are going to provide resources for you to persist and thrive, right? Um, are they survival tactics or are they like, are you, you going for these really low expectations or are you just like, so that students, like most of the students in my research, what they considered to be safe on their campus was that they didn't get the shit kicked out of them at all. Like that was that low level of what it means to be safe, right? While safety is contextual, but like, no, it's a pretty, my campus is fine. Like no one's beating me up. Like, okay, I need students to have higher expectations for their institution. Um, and best practices, when people say, oh, we hit all of the check boxes, that reminds me of um, Sarah Ahmed's like tick box diversity. Like we could say we have a policy, oh, look, we're five stars on campus climate when it comes to this for, you know, however we want to look at it. No. What does that mean? Because there are practices without policies and there are policies without practices. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I would say now is, um, opposed to what I said, you know, five years ago is um, we need to have higher expectations for ourselves. Um, and we need to hope that our students and encourage our students to have higher expectations for us, for the institutions, for um, the world that they're going to expect after. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying that um, very much. Um, I'm not a fan of best practices. Um, I think they're a very quantitative way to think about human work, right? And so uh, my writing partner, uh, one of my writing partners and I um, have this desire to write a piece called Father Knows Best Practices. Ugh. Yes. Um, we, we often come up with these like, what we think are like really fun, great article or paper titles and, mm -hmm. and haven't gotten to them yet. Uh, but that's one of them, talking about yeah. how best practices are rooted in normative structures um, very much relating in some regards back to Sarah Med's tick box and how can we just like do the bare minimum. And, and, and you talked about not getting beat up. I had a, I remember I had a, a student that I advised that was the president of our LGBT student org back in the day uh, and talked very much about that as he, he liked campus because he knew that he wasn't getting beat up. And I was like, right. Yeah. So, well, this yeah. is a great conversation. Um, I appreciate um, everything you've given. Uh, is there anything you would like to add or say uh, to the students um, watching on the other end? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, I think I'd say thank you. Thank you to you for asking me and giving me the opportunity to talk about um, that piece. And um, thank you to them for finding the like time and attention to watch this. Uh, I hope you were mildly entertained. Um, if not um, somewhat distracted from the perils happening in the world. And um, I think that, you know, um, this kind of work, thinking about inclusion and diversity work in higher education is an ongoing battle. So make sure you take the time and care of yourself. Um, because as they say, when you fly, if anyone's ever been on a plane, you have to secure your own oxygen mask before you can help the person next to you. Um, and so hopefully you're finding ways to secure your own mask. Wonderful closing. Thank you, Chase. Appreciate it. Thank you.
fantastic. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for being here with us, uh, Dr. Paul Shaw uh, from the University of South Carolina. One of my uh, former professors um, had a wonderful time taking at least two, maybe not more uh, courses with you uh, as a doc student. Uh, where we spent some time this week uh, reading uh, your piece, uh, Spaces to Speak. I'm blanking on the second part of that title. Spaces to Speak, Photo Voice and the Reimagination of Girls' Education in India. Um, and so I have a few different questions for you, um, Dr. Shaw, but we'd love uh, for you to say hello, if you would like. Yes, excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Weiser, for inviting me to um, speak with your, your class via podcast. Well, I love all the, the new technology that we have. Um, uh, yeah, I'm very excited to offer any um, insights through my experiences. Of course, all, you know, contextualized within my experiences. Um, I have read a lot, spent a lot of time thinking about and implemented kind of participatory methods and some and a little bit of photo voice. And so hopefully whatever I can share will be will be helpful in moving along conversations in class and thinking for all of you um and so you talk about in the beginning of your piece that um you say we must employ methods for research that open the black box of schooling and reveal the lived educational experiences of girls and to do so you use participatory methods and photo voice would you talk a little bit about sort of the ways that these participatory methods uh might open that black box as you say and a little bit uh on what a black box is for those who are unaware Absolutely, yeah. So when I'm talking about the kind of the black box of schooling, I am talking about what are the kind of both macro but also micro level sort of interactions and experiences that are going on in school. So we can talk a lot about what's supposed to happen through policy or through curriculum. We can talk a little bit about how we're going to engage in schooling through pedagogy, right? But that's all from the outsider's perspective, right? Maybe the insider through the teacher, but really getting at the ways in which students experience schooling is to me what opens up this black box of schooling, right? It's ultimately what really matters when we're thinking about all of the outcomes that we're interested in improving. We can't get there if we don't know how individuals within schools are actually experiencing schooling. And that includes how they experience policy, how they experience practice, right? How they engage with the curriculum, how they respond to pedagogy. Um, and so to me, I see that my research is really focused on uncovering these practices, these experiences, experiences from the perspective of students. A lot of research has been done from teachers' perspective, and there's less, less research that's really looked at um, calling the experiences through the articulations of the students themselves. So that's kind of the, the broad orientation that I have. And, and when I think about, you know, in, in this piece for the, that we're talking about, I was looking in formal schools, but I also do research that, you know, opens up the black box of sorts of educational experiences broadly. So it doesn't have to only be within a formal school setting, the same sort of um, um, kind of goal uh, underlies a lot of my work inside and outside of schools. Um, and so when you're trying to do that, right, and when, you, when you're really trying to center the experiences and the articulations of students, I found that you have to rethink a lot of hierarchies that are embedded in more traditional research processes. Um, you know, I, if I truly believe that these individuals with whom I'm working with, girls in this instance, um, are agentic, right? They're competent social actors, but they're not just passive recipients of dominant discourses of hegemony, right? Um, and that they're not just kind of uh, products of socialization, then I really need to focus on their insights. And I really you know, need to provide spaces where we can learn from their insights, right? In terms of respecting that sort of um, epistemological commitment that I have. Um, and so engaging in research that is critical but also is participatory, right, is a way that I try to um, help kind of uh, uncover or illuminate how the girls in this instance are actually making sense of their educational experiences. And then through that process, hopefully providing these girls an opportunity to um, strengthen, you know, their um, sense of selves and, and their confidence and their ability to actually articulate um, and see validity in their experiences. So it's 
definitely a much kind of larger orientation towards um, decentering the traditional hierarchy between the researcher and the participants in terms of the researcher being the one who knows, the researcher who is, the, who is seen as the producer of knowledge and disseminator of knowledge, and really trying to shift that platform so that it's not the researcher, it's your participants, right? You're speaking to them because they are the experts. They are certainly the experts on their lives and their experiences. Um, and therefore, research needs to be able to um, convey that, right, in, in ways that really uh, that really disrupt that authoritative voice of the researcher. And so that's where I see participatory researchers having um, the potential to intervene and disrupt those sorts of hierarchies. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about and was supposed to present uh, at NASPA last year about the use of participatory methods with uh, college students um, as a way to speak back and push uh, against um, hegemonies within higher education. Um, and, and part of that comes from uh, many of the conversations that you and I have had over the years and, and, and thinking that I've done. Uh, but one of the things that I think about um, a lot is representation um, uh, in doing research. Uh, because, you know, while we might engage in participatory work as, as, as scholars, like we have a responsibility an obligation, I feel, to um, share that knowledge um, so that it's not just, you know, um, professional development for me or, or, or the researcher, right? So we're putting that out there, uh, but also not putting the onus of the writing um, and dissemination upon co-researchers or participants or uh, photographers or however we uh, or they name themselves in our project. Um, and so you um, write in your piece that you in Employed photo voice to infuse your research with reflexivity regarding power representation in voice. And so I was thinking alongside of an article that you actually shared with me years ago by uh, Megan Paul Cummings and Martinez called Consciousness Raising or Unintentionally Oppressive Potential Negative Consequences in Photo Voice, which uh, the students have read as well this semester. So thinking about uh, scholars who wish to engage in participatory approaches to educational research aim to infuse research with reflexivity regarding power representation in voice while being attuned to the reality that images and narratives can be co-opted, mis- or disinterpreted, and used for antagonist aims for the purpose of research. How do we navigate uh, those issues where images might be taken out of context or used to reify power imbalances or stereotypes? Um, how do you think about that and how do you navigate those tensions? Absolutely. I mean, this is such a big issue for kind of all research across the board, right, is that you, as a researcher who is usually the, the those, the one in charge of, of, of the uh, dissemination, right, of, of this research, um, that it can be, it's going to be interpreted, right? I mean, that's, and then, and, and particularly if we delve more into kind of arts-based or narrative sorts of uh, research, right, the actual, the point is for there to be that kind of really intense engagement with and by the audience, right? And, and there is a lot of space for that interpretation and that co-construction of knowledge through um, the, the engagement process. And so there's, you know, always the danger, right? That your research, um, whether it be images or narratives, right? Are going to be misinterpreted. Right? And then the real danger of being used in ways that can actually harm those very individuals that you're hoping your research is, is hoping to, um, you know, is working with them to uplift or to change. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a tricky balance that I think is not at all unique only to participatory research, is not only unique to, um, to the ways in which, you know, photographs or art, you know, are consumed by other people. And so there, this is why I think that, you know, any research, any form of, of research needs to be deeply, deeply contextualized. And there needs to be, you know, your job may not be to tell the story, but your job may be to ensure that the story is as clear as possible to kind of hedge against thinking through the ways in which the research could be used in negative ways or in harmful ways. Um, a lot of that might mean actually not sharing a lot of the research, right? And that's one of the challenges with participatory research in general, especially when it's critical and political and maybe pushing back in really explicit ways, 
um, is that there is a lot of potential for harm. And that could mean having to not disseminate some of that work. Um, and as you know, students who where the outcome is really important, right? If we're thinking about a dissertation or publication skill, you know, for the job market or, or reports to write, um, for funding, you know, grant uh, responsibilities, there are a lot of really tricky decisions that need to be made by the researcher in terms of not only thinking about what needs to be done for you, putting that in the broader context of how is this going to input, you know, impact everyone. And maybe that means part of my research is not going to be able to be used in these formal arenas. Um, and I think that, you know, though that along with the lack of control of what the research process is going to look like and how that's going to unfold are two some of the most kind of challenging, um, challenging kind of parts of engaging with participatory research, right? You can't control you can never control the outcomes. And then in these contexts, you control them because you don't want to control them even less, right? That's a very explicit orientation that has definite um, implications. So I think, you know, being clear and trying to involve and invoke the articulations of your participants as much as possible in any sort of analysis and any sort of um, presentation uh, you know, for my research, when I did the exhibit, when the exhibit was first unveiled, it was actually the girls standing next to their photographs describing what the photographs were meant to be. And they titled it and they provided a short little caption to try to clarify what it is, you know, what the intention of sharing this photograph was. Now, those photographs stood on their own years later, you know, six, seven, eight years, they were still up at the school when the students had gone through and had left, of course, and we're not standing there able to kind of interpret the piece the way that they would like to. And so how were those photographs consumed, right? And what did those photographs mean? And what sorts of conversations stem from it? Um, I think those are all really, really important, important questions to ask. Um, and the hope is that through that initial research process, there was enough clarity, there was enough, um, you know, involvement from the research participants that hopefully hedges against a lot of that co-optation or misuse and misunderstandings. Thanks, uh, that's really helpful. Um, when you first, so your piece talks about uh, some research that you did um, in India um, and talks about the, um, uh, you know, the larger context, right? And so you moved in, uh, initially you lived with the principal. Um, and after some time, you made the decision uh, to live with other girls and, and other teachers. Um, as a um, person who reads the world, um, I'm sure there were indications of uh, why you should move out of the principal's home. Um, I, I'd be fascinated to hear that story and um, sort of what uh, drew you to that decision and what that was like. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, this was definitely a process that I had no idea how it was going to unfold. I had done, um, so this was this, this uh, article came out of my dissertation research where I um, did this two-year ethnographic study. And in order to choose the school, I had done a couple of summer pre-dissertation visits to get to know the kind of, well, decide kind of where in India I wanted to do my research, then start to get to know these kind of educational contexts. And the only way you can do that, like in the United States, um, many places around the world, is that you need governmental permission. So I needed to have state level permission, and then I needed to have district level permission, cluster, you know, multiple levels of permission. I was very lucky to have early on in my um, student research career befriended the state gender coordinator um, for education for the state of Gujarat. And so she became my kind of primary gatekeeper. And she's, we spent a couple of summers together just driving all around, visiting all of these schools. And she has relations, you know, she's the, she's the state level director over these schools, which again, then she has multiple administrators underneath her before you get to the principal. So she's of course got a lot of power, right? She's, she's the most powerful um, woman related to this program in the state. So I came with her. Um, Sorry, I apologize. Um, that set me up 
uh, in a very uh, explicit hierarchy as I walked into the door of any of these schools. So the school that I ended up choosing, I had I had visited some you know months before. They knew me as this potential person who was going to come research them from America with Tutti Madam, who's the state gender coordinator. Um, and so I was, you can imagine what their, what they thought of me. Um, and so um, they were very willing and eager to please. And so that meant automatically they set me up to live with the principal and they wanted to make sure that I was catered to. They wanted to make sure I was comfortable. And that trickled down very quickly, of course, to the teachers, but also to the students, right? I was the madam. I was the woman from the state. And then I was this researcher from America. And they better give me all the right answers and they better do all the right things all the time. Otherwise, who knows what I'm going to say and I'm going to be really disappointed. And then Trukti Madam is going to be really disappointed. And then maybe their school is going to shut down. Right. And so that's what I walked into. And, and I knew that that's what I walked into. What I didn't realize was what the repercussions of that were going to be for my research. So I was there, you know, just hanging out, trying to, um, trying to kind of get a lay of the land. My research was originally going to be comparative. I was going to have done two schools within this time period. And after the first couple of weeks there, I realized that I was making such slow progress and building any sort of relationships that really would enable me to get at this black box of schooling from the perspective of the, of the students, right? This is, again, that research that was that's very common to do, to sit there and focus on the students. You wanna get that, usually you get that, that, that those insights from the teacher. Um, so this was a really different idea to begin with. Um, I was getting nowhere. These students would not talk to me. These students didn't, you know, were really nervous, felt that they had to conform to certain sorts of engagements. Their, you know, the power was so, was so, um, so, you know, impervious and so um, just hanging there like a thick cloud that I needed to figure out a way to get out of it. And as the politics of the school itself started revealing itself to me, it became very clear that the principal, who was the only, was of a different caste than the other teachers, and there were all sorts of hierarchies embedded there. And I quickly realized that if I was going to try to make any progress, I needed to change that physical um, component up. And it was an, e you know, it was a relatively easy thing to do in the sense that there was there was a space for me to stay at the girls, but it was actually hard to navigate because the district level coordinator really wanted me to be comfortable. He really wanted to please me. And he said, oh, there's no way you can be comfortable at the school. There's, you know, and it, and it, they were my host. And it really disrupted this idea of being hosted, um, which was the point, but was also challenging to do. So um, it was a lot of those broader kind of understanding my power dynamics, understanding my role in it, recognizing if I needed to make a change about how I was situated within this context, I needed to make a physical change. I needed to, to somehow actually disrupt the norm, which would have been, you know, living outside of the school because I was not a teacher. Um, I needed to disrupt that. And so, and I needed to spend more time with the girls in non, you know, in, in more kind of informal ways. And, and so living with them was, was clearly the simplest place to start. That's, that's fantastic. It reminds me, you know, sort of how you close out there about spending more time with the students in a more uh, less formal, less intentionally pedagogical reminds me of the work that my students are going to be doing as student affairs educators, right? And many of them are going to be residence hall directors. Not that that's the same thing, but, you know, living physically in the same space uh, certainly changes up that relationship um, that you have with uh, students and with people largely. Um, so one of the images uh, that uh, you share in your piece is a picture of uh, Hammock. Um, it is highlighted by Kavita, who shares that she likes this photograph very much. I wonder why boys do not help and why the husbands also do not help in this way. 
This week, we're talking about gender and its impact on education in the US largely. Uh, and your work uh, highlights the experiences of young girls in education in the state of Gujarat. As a comparative scholar, uh, would you say that there are similarities uh, and also differences within gender roles across these contexts? And does the historical legacy and contemporary reality of colonialism impact these roles? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I, you know, I think that, so the, you know, the larger issue that Kavita's photograph is, is, um, is kind of manifesting or illuminating, right, is patriarchy. And of course, patriarchy exists in the US to the, I would argue, to the same extent as it exists in countries like India and around the world. Um, and so are there insights from, you know, the ways in which Kavita understood patriarchy and used this photograph to highlight and illuminate, right, the ways in which these sort of gender roles and the differences between, in this case, girls and boys, um, you know, are, are seen in terms of responsibilities and roles in society. I absolutely think that those are transferable across contexts. Um, so there's the process of challenging that's transferable, the illuminating of kind of these structures and systems, right, through their own understandings and articulations, I think, are, are transferable. Um, but I also think the very concept of patriarchy is transferable. They may manifest themselves differently, given different contexts, but the idea of gender roles, of norms, um, you know, are all uh, very prevalent around the world. These are definitely global structures of um, of marginalization exist, and so I would I would think that while it may not look exactly the same, there are definitely similarities and insights that you can gain um, by looking at manifestations across contexts. Yeah, uh, rereading um, Sarah Ahmed's uh, "Living a Feminist Life." Uh, for another class that I'm teaching. Um, and I, I first read it a few years back um, and she talks about her first feminist teacher uh, being her auntie from Pakistan and how um, you know feminism doesn't move west to east, um, but it, as so many US center, centric scholars believe, but that there are manifestations of resistance to patriarchy globally. Um, and so as you were speaking, that's uh, I, I just read that passage this morning, and so it's it's very fresh in my mind. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But I think it's so much more about looking again at these spaces of resistance, these spaces of negotiation, right? Um, these spaces of illuminating what this looks like than it is trying to think about the um, systems and structures as being the same or different, right? And so, yeah, I think Ahmed's work is very, uh, she, I definitely draw from looking from that perspective, um, similar, similar that she expresses. So, um, we're running short on time, and so I have one last question for you. Um, you closed uh, your article by speaking about the limitations of this work, uh, and that in order to gain a comprehensive understanding of the role of photo voice in supporting girls' empowerment and to better understand how empowerment process unfolds in girls' lives, follow-up research is necessary such as longitudinal studies. I know that you've continued to follow up with this group of girls, you know, now young women or women. Uh, how are they, where are they, what's been going on in their lives since this project began and what impact would you say having a PI-LDD in their lives played and what impact um, has them in your lives played? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yes, I did continue working with these girls for another six years. So I ended up doing a kind of eight year longitudinal study with them that ended um, in 2016, um, when there was my last visit to that region for research purposes. And um, they have taken a lot of different paths. Um, a couple of them have continued on and completed college. Um, three or four of them uh, did get married and some of them were working, some of them were not. Many of them did continue into secondary school, didn't complete them. Um, there are, there were two who passed away due to um, sicknesses and one had an accident on her farm, working in, in the farm. Um, so, you know, they, it definitely took the range in terms of futures and not easy to say, well, yep, you know, schooling automatically led to this sort of track for all of them. So many other competing sorts of uh, contextual issues um, certainly impacted their decision-making and the sort of court, you know, um, course of life that, life that they were able to take. Um, 
But what was really, really amazing is that the first time that I went back to try to to find them was two years after I had finished my original study. And um, the only information that I had, so this was a residential boarding school that had like about a hundred kilometer catchment area that that, um, children came to. So the only information that I had was their father's first name and the village that they came from. And so they finished, you know, they graduated from the school, so they could have been anywhere within within this district. So I, you know, got, I was able to work with a local driver. So he knew the regions and the districts and the villages really well. And he took me around and we showed up at these villages and um, just tried to locate the families and locate the girls. And I thought that this was going to be just a total you know, waste of time. This is going to be so how do you track down these, you know, 15 girls like across an entire district. Um, and the crazy, crazy, crazy thing was that when I showed up, word of mouth very quickly spread. And that American who did the photographs with that girl was here. So it was the, the photo voice project had, a, had probably the most long lasting impact, not just to the girls. And when I met with them, that was something that they all brought up immediately, but also within their families and into their villages, into their communities. It was seen as such a unique way of engaging with them. It's such a meaningful way of engaging with them. You know, this idea of recognizing that the girls themselves had experiences and insights and skills was something that they appreciated, that they loved, that they valued, that was meaningful for them. They all still had the photographs. They would dig them out and, you know, have me sit down and say, like, oh, we've got the photographs. Um, and it really, really, really highlighted to me the importance and, and the, the fact that like that critical and participatory research is ultimately relational, right? These participatory methodologies, right, where you're, you are actually, um, you are actually allowing your participants in to the research process, I think really, really, really does build meaningful and long last and the potential for long lasting relationships. Um, and so I, I draw from, you know, Nagar, Richa Nagar's work, where she says that we are not only making, right, our participants the subjects of the sob stories we seek to tell, right? They're not just kind of playing the role of those st stories we want to share, but are much more than that, right? Are real individuals with real experiences um, that you want to build meaningful relationships with. And so the Photo Voice Project surprisingly to me was actually I think the primary way that I was able to continue to do longitudinal work because of the strength of the relationships of course with the girls themselves built around working on this project collaboratively but also what it meant for their communities and what it meant for their families and the respect that they had for me as somebody who wasn't there to use them wasn't there to take and leave but actually like that this was real this was an authentic sort of relationship and that enabled me to continue, you know, they welcomed me into their homes and they helped me find their daughters and they took me onto the farms where their girls were, um, led me to the villages that, you know, they, you know, they, um, and, and it was really, it, it ended up being far more important in a logistical manner than I would have ever, um, that I would have ever imagined and even more meaningful. Right, because of that. So I think that did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I was I was thinking about you know um, so it's been so wonderful to be in conversation with you again, and I was thinking about um, the relational element uh, to research, uh, particularly participatory research and and, and critical research uh, as well. Uh, I was thinking about. Um, uh, a Facebook post that I have screenshotted uh, from uh, Dr. Kakali Bhattacharya, who talks about um, um, how as a newly minted uh, graduate student being on a job interview and, and a senior faculty member saying, you know, laughing at her and saying, by the end of your career, you'll be surrounded by a group of participants in your life as if it were a bad thing. Um, and, and that, you know, resonates with me because, you know, it is relational. We spend so much time, not only with um, 
the individuals with whom we're doing research at the moment, but, you know, also listening to their narratives and rereading them and that, um, you know, you feel a, a connection. And I think that's a, appropriate um, if you really care about who you're working with. And so, you know, well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been uh, delightful to talk with you about your scholarship. I first read this article uh, as it was assigned to me um, in a class um, and um, back in the day by uh, Dr. Kara Brown, um, in which you, that was the first time I think I met you as you came in, in to uh, talk yeah. about the article in that class and um, got to know you better in your work and, and, and working with you. Um, very excited to, um, electronically introduce you to the students with whom I'm working now and, and getting, uh, I'll, you know, I thank you so very much for uh, sharing uh, your knowledge and wisdom with the students here, uh, you know, many states away. Um, and thank you so much for your time, Dr. Shaw. I sincerely appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate getting, uh, getting to share something and, and hoping that more students are going to engage in this sort of work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us this week uh, for these conversations around gender uh, and education, focusing on uh, Dr. Catalano's work around trans men in college uh, in a U.S. context, as well as Dr. Shaw's uh, uh, research on young girls' education um, in uh, the state of Gujarat of India. I'm really excited to engage with you all in class about the impact that gender has on our experiences in education. Have a wonderful rest of your week.